Today is May the 25th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is also available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook is using your personal data? Well, we are now learning how Facebook uses your personal data. The Attorney General for Washington, D.C. filed a lawsuit against Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg on Monday, accusing him of being personally responsible for the massive Cambridge Analytica data breach. In the suit, Attorney General Carl Racine alleges that Zuckerberg's failure to oversee consumers' data privacy led to the Cambridge Analytica scandal, in which a political consulting firm used millions of Facebook's user data without their knowledge in an attempt to sway the 2016 election. Racine said in his statement, The evidence shows Mr. Zuckerberg was personally involved in Facebook's failure to protect the privacy and data of its users, leading directly to Cambridge Analytica incident. The civil suit, filed in Superior Court of the District of Columbia, claims Zuckerberg violated the Consumer Protection Procedures Act, the District Attorney Consumer Protection Law, he added. This unprecedented security breach exposed tens of millions of Americans' personal information, and Mr. Zuckerberg's policies enabled a multi-year effort to mislead users about the extent of Facebook's wrongful conduct. This lawsuit is not only warranted, but necessary, and sends a message that corporate leaders, including CEOs, will be held accountable for their actions. Meta has been at the center of controversy since the news of Cambridge Analytica first broke. In 2019, the Federal Trade Commission ordered Facebook to pay a $5 billion fine related to the scandal. Governments and regulators across the globe, including the Federal Trade Commission, are also cracking down on the social media giant via antitrust suits and legislation. According to Racine, the latest suit against Zuckerberg comes as a result of an existing investigation and lawsuit his office filed against Facebook in the aftermath of the Cambridge Analytica scandal in 2018. The Attorney General said that Facebook took users for a ride over Cambridge Analytica scandal where the political consulting firm obtained data from 87 million Americans and used it to build targeted voting profiles before the 2016 election. In his complaint, Racine's office argues that Facebook grew wealthy off of acquiring and monetizing the data of those billions of people leading their lives in Facebook's digital ecosystem. The suit further alleges Zuckerberg directed the company 
to encourage and team up with outside groups that collected Facebook user data to manipulate users' mood, what they buy, and how they vote, or to benefit Zuckerberg's company. Racine further said that the data of 70 million users included over half of D.C. residents. Racine claims that because Zuckerberg holds the largest number of shares of Meta and has final say over everything that happens at the company, he is ultimately responsible for Facebook's day-to-day operations. As a result, Racine claims Zuckerberg is also responsible for the events that led to the scandal. Facebook is also being sued by several states' attorney generals over alleged anti-competitive practices. Facebook isn't the only tech company Racine is targeting. Racine was joined by multiple other states in filing a suit against Google for its relentless collection of user data through the use of its apps. Intel and AMD chips are no longer available, so Russia looked to China for an alternative. The sanctions Russia faces following its invasion of Ukraine include both AMD and Intel halting chip sales in the country. Russia needs a replacement x86 chip and they found an alternative. Tom's Hardware reports motherboard maker Danny launched a new micro ATX motherboard in Russia capable of running the Kaizen KX6640MA system on chip. It's developed by Chinese semiconductor company Zoshen, which is a joint venture between VIA Technologies and the Shanghai Municipal Government. VIA Technologies was founded in 1987 in Fremont, California, USA. In 1992, it moved the headquarters to Taipei, Taiwan, in order to establish closer partnerships with the growing IT manufacturing base in Taiwan and neighboring China. VIA acquired most of Cyrex in 1999, then a division of National Semiconductor. That same year, VIA acquired Centaur technology from Integrated Device Technology, marking its entry into the x86 CPU market. In 2013, VIA entered into an agreement with the Shanghai Municipal Government to create a fabulous semiconductor company called Shoshan. The joint venture is producing an x86-compatible CPU for the Chinese market. In November of last year, Intel recruited some of the employees of the Centaur Technology Division from VIA, a deal worth $125 million, and effectively acquiring the talent and know-how of the x86 division. It's not clear what will happen with the x86 license held by VIA. VIA has produced multiple x86 compatible CPUs through its acquisitions of Cyrix and Centaur technology. VIA produces CPUs through the Shoshan joint venture. The KX6640MA chip uses the x86 instruction set and is able to run the same software developed for Intel and AMD platforms. However, the performance is not the same. A 4-core, four 4-thread four version of the chip is 11% the speed of the core i3-12100F and 8% the speed of the AMD Ryzen 5-5500. There's a similarly large gap in performance for single-threaded operation of 20% the speed of the core i3 
and 23% the speed of the Ryzen 5. The KX6640MA chip is comparable to the Celeron N4020 in currently sold laptops. It's safe to say that the Kaizen KX6640MA is a chip the Russian government can claim replaces the Western alternatives, but that by no means guarantees it will be able to cope with all the tasks thrown at it. In fact, anything beyond running an operating system and office suite may be a push. Growth at all costs is being replaced by cost-cutting as well-known firms pull the trigger on staff reductions. Many tech firms are facing an increasingly tough reality. Interest rates are going up, as are prices, and the economy may be heading for a serious slowdown. We may be seeing the initial signs of a weakened economy manifest in the tech sector, too. As companies start to lay off employees, the tech sector as a whole appears to be scaling back as the economy enters a turbulent stretch. The tech layoffs from across the tech industry are occurring for a variety of reasons, but it's clear that the sector, which experienced explosive growth over the past two decades, leading to the creation of hundreds of tech unicorns born of deep-pocketed venture capitalists and private equity firms, may be running out of froth. In fact, venture capitalists may be coming more tight-fisted as the economy itself tightens. Venture funding fell 13% quarter over quarter during the first three months of 2022, according to data from Crunchbase. Further, investors appear to be reassessing their overall strategies, which may impact high-growth tech companies. The increase in discount rates corresponding with the market volatility has led to a fundamental repricing of valuations and a sharp rotation away from stocks with relatively high implied growth rates towards stocks with relatively low growth rates. This will impact those who are working from home. In the first few months of 2022, a wave of layoffs swept across American business. The cuts stem from slower business growth paired with rising labor costs. Even major tech companies like Facebook, parent company Meta, are facing contractions. The Nasdaq is down 27%. Out of the 2,700 companies in the entire Nasdaq Composite Index, six tech companies make up almost 41% of the entire market cap. The technology sector accounts for just over half the index. Working from home may provide comfort, but not job security. Tech employees who work remotely risk getting axed over their in-person colleagues as tiny startups and big tech firms alike get squeezed by rising interest rates and plummeting stock prices, hiring experts told the New York Post. Techies looking to hold on to their jobs should therefore consider ditching their pajamas and getting back into the office if they want to hold on to their jobs, the experts say. Managers believe employees who work remote are lower performers than those that come to the office. The chief of human resources research at the consulting firm Gartner told the New York Post they will on average be more likely to lay off those who are working remote than those who are coming into the office. Simply put, it's out of sight, out of mind. The news comes as tech workers are getting jittery about their jobs. 
Facebook and Instagram parent company Meta implemented a hiring freeze earlier in May, while smaller firms including Netflix, Peloton, Robinhood, Carvana, and GoPuff have all laid off employees in recent months. Tech workers have been fretting about layoffs and the potential end of remote work in recent weeks. The talent firm 10X Management told the New York Post that remote work is a great tiebreaker for bosses deciding which employees to lay off. If I'm evaluating and who am I going to get rid of, I might choose to keep the person who's in the office and is near me all the time, the management firm said, and that the best tech employees will be safe regardless of whether or not they come into the office. If all things are equal, the person in the office might have an advantage. But if you're a top performer, I guess you don't have to worry a bit about the difference. An HR expert said women work from home more frequently than men. If companies ask employees based on whether employees work in person, they therefore risk ending up with male-dominated workforce. If we're not really careful as organizations are laying off people, there'll likely be a gender bias in terms of the people that they lay off. A mystery issue experienced on NASA's Voyager 1 probe from 1977. First, some background information for those born after 1977. Voyager 1 is a space probe that was launched by NASA on September 5, 1977, part of the Voyager program to study the outer solar system. The spacecraft still communicates with the deep space network to receive routine commands and to transmit data to Earth. Voyager 1 is the most distant human-made object in existence, having launched 44 years ago. It is currently operating at the edge of the solar system, flying through the interstellar medium, beyond the sun's influence, and the Voyager 1 probe is still exploring interstellar space, but it has encountered an issue that mystifies the spacecraft's team on Earth. NASA's engineering team is investigating a mystery taking place on the Voyager 1 spacecraft. Voyager 1 continues to operate well, despite its advanced age and 14.5 billion miles from Earth, and it can receive and execute commands sent from NASA, as well as gather and send back science data. Voyager is sending impossible data back to NASA from the edge of the solar system. But the readouts from the Attitude, Articulation, and Control System, which control the spacecraft's orientation in space, they don't match up with what Voyager is actually doing. The Attitude, Articulation, and Control System ensures that the probe's high-gain antenna remains pointed at Earth so Voyager can send data back to NASA. Due to Voyager's interstellar location, it takes light 20 hours and 33 minutes to travel one way. So the call and response of one message between NASA and Voyager takes two days. So far, the Voyager team believes the attitude, articulation, and control system is still working, but the instrument's data readouts seem random or impossible. The system issue hasn't triggered anything to put the spacecraft into safe mode so far. That's when only essential operations occur so engineers can diagnose an issue that would put the spacecraft at risk. Further, the issue has not triggered any fault protection system that could put Voyager into safe mode, and the signal has not weakened, suggesting that the antenna is still in its normal position, pointing towards Earth. 
NASA says that it will continue to monitor the situation as it is possible that the invalid data could be being produced by another system, but says that it does not understand why it's happening or how long this issue could continue. It takes approximately two days for a message from Earth to reach Voyager and get a response from the craft. The spacecraft is far beyond what the mission plan is anticipated. We're also in interstellar space, a high-radiation environment that no spacecraft have flown in before, so there are some big challenges for the engineering team. And Voyager's signal is as strong as ever, meaning the antenna is still pointed to Earth, and the team is trying to determine if this is incorrect data is coming directly from this instrument or possibly from another instrument is causing it. Until the nature of the issue is better understood, the team cannot anticipate whether this might affect how long the spacecraft can collect and transmit science data, according to the NASA release. The spacecraft is almost 45 years old, which is far beyond what the mission plan is anticipated. It is in interstellar space, a high-radiation environment that no spacecraft have flown in before, so there are some big challenges for the engineering team. If the team doesn't determine the source of the issue, they may just, well, adapt to it, or if they can find it. The issue may be solved by making the software change or relying on a redundant hardware system. Voyager has already relied on backup systems to last as long as it has. In 2017, the probe fired thrusters that were used during its initial planetary encounters during the 1970s. Guess what? They still work after remaining unused for 37 years. The aging probes produce very little power per year, so subsystems and heaters have been turned off over the years so that critical systems and science instruments can keep operating. Voyager 2, which was launched about the same time, is a twin spacecraft, and that continues to operate well in interstellar space 12.1 billion miles from Earth. By comparison, Neptune, the furthest planet from Earth, is at most only 2.9 billion miles away. Both probes, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, were launched in 1977, and both have far exceeded their original purpose to fly by planets. Now they have become the only two spacecraft to gather data from interstellar space and provide insights about the heliosphere, or the bubble created by the sun that extends beyond the planets in our solar system. There is a possibility that NASA will not find a source of the issue and instead have to issue software changes or use one of the craft's backup systems, something that has been done before in 2017 when Voyager 1 had to switch from its primary thrusters to secondary ones because of signs of degradation. As a historical point of reference, the computing power on Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, the equivalent of that in terms of computing power with a personal computer back in 1977, was the Intel 8080. On November the 1st of this year, New York City will be requiring companies with more than four employees to post salary ranges. In January of last year, Colorado took the unusual move of instituting a law, the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act, that requires online job postings to include compensation information. It is the only state in the United States that mandates this type of transparency. The New York City law was initially set to take effect on May the 15th of this year, but after pushback from businesses in late April, 
the city council delayed the start date to November of this year and amended the law to only apply to hourly and salary positions that are physically performed in New York City. A new report from workforce analytics companies, Expert HR, and GapSquare showed that over 80% of U.S. employers who undertook pay equity audits found equity gaps in their organizations, reinforcing the need for legislation to help balance the scales. For businesses and HR departments, pay transparency is needed. But as companies in Colorado have discovered, it's also a big operational headache. Most countries don't have similar regulations. Canadian companies based in the province of Ontario are required to share salary ranges on listings. And the European Union is considering similar legislation this year. Other countries have made a push for transparency in gender pay equity, and some, like Norway, have made existing salary information available upon request. New York City has just removed its last payphone booth from the city, a once iconic symbol across New York City, where Clark Kent would turn into Superman, has been replaced by the world of smartphones. If you ask the average person on the street, where does Clark Kent change into Superman? Nine out of ten people would answer, in a phone booth. Over the decades, the phone booths have featured widely in pop culture, from comic books to Hollywood blockbusters and TV shows. Famously, the cramped but private spaces served as the impromptu changing rooms for journalist Clark Kent as he transformed into Superman, the Man of Steel. But remnants of that bygone area are not completely lost. While New York's standard payphones are now confined to history, four full-length Superman phone booths remain standing on the Upper West Side. The city began removing street payphones in 2015 to replace them with the Link NYC kiosk. They are now nearly 2,000 kiosks across the city, according to a map from Link NYC. From roughly 8,000 to zero, the last payphone will find its next home at the Museum of the City of New York. The last of city street payphones was disconnected uprooted and lifted into obscurity Monday, with a handful of city officials looking on. The removal of the payphone, which was located on 745 7th Avenue, that's near 50th Street, signaled the official end of what used to be one of the city's most iconic street symbols. Public payphones could be found throughout the city decades ago, but the rise of cell phones have made them obsolete. With the use of public payphones declining, officials began removing them from the city in 2015 after City Bridge was chosen by state officials to replace the payphone with Link NYC, which offered free high speed Wi Fi to those near its kiosk, as well as free phone calls and a charging station for mobile devices. The Commissioner of the Office of Technology and Innovation said in the news release, Just like we transitioned from the horse and buggy to the automobile and from the automobile to the airplane, the digital evolution has progressed from payphones to high-speed Wi-Fi kiosks to meet the demands of our rapidly changing daily communications needs. 
While the final payphone will no longer be in service, it won't be forgotten. It will be installed at the Museum of the City of New York near the east side of Central Park in the exhibit Analog City, which will look back at the city before the rise of technology. On June the 24th, 1947, veteran pilot Kenneth Arnold reported seeing what he described as a line of shiny UFOs flying past Mount Rainier in Washington State at a rate of at least 1,200 miles per hour. The incident, known later as the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting, was widely reported and became the first post-World War II UFO incident, becoming the first in what is considered the modern era of UFO sightings. Arnold's description of the flat, metallic, shiny objects led to the term flying saucer that became so familiar with UFO sightings. The incident and worldwide reporting spawned many other reports of UFOs over the next couple of weeks. This was followed by the Roswell UFO incident on the 7th of July, 1947. Debris of a highly classified project used by the U.S. Army Air Force to detect atomic bomb tests in the Soviet Union was recovered from a ranch around 75 miles north of the town of Roswell in New Mexico after being reported by ranch worker named William Brazel. Pentagon officials told a house panel that there are now close to 400 reports from military personnel of possible encounters with UFOs, a significant increase from the 144 tracked in a major report released last year by the U.S. intelligence community. A Navy official also said at the hearing that investigators are reasonably confident the floating pyramid-shaped objects captured on one leaked, widely seen military video were likely drones. That footage, which the military confirmed last year, was authentic. UFOs are now referred to as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAPs. The number of UAP reports has risen to approximately 400, a significant increase from the 144 that was reported between 2004 and 2021 that were tracked in last year's report. That the spike was due to a reduction in the stigma associated with stepping forward to report such incidents in the wake of the 2021 report. Pilots avoided reporting any sightings for they were laughed at when they did. The report stated that most of the phenomena were likely physical objects and noted that the UAP task force doesn't have any wreckage that isn't consistent with being a terrestrial origin. Even so, the naval official said, questions remain. I can't point to something that definitely was not man-made, but I can point to a number of examples which remain unresolved. The Pentagon is establishing an office to speed up the identification of previously unknown or unidentified airborne objects in a methodical, logical, and standardized manner. We also understand that there has been a cultural stigma surrounding UAP. Our goal is to eliminate the stigma by fully incorporating our operators and mission personnel into a standardized data-gathering process. He said, Navy and Air Force crews now have a step-by-step procedures for reporting on a UAP on their kneeboard in the cockpit, and that these efforts have led to more reporting. What is so great is that this is a direct response to public pressure. It is representative government representing the citizens and their interests. 
For too long, the stigma associated with UAPs has gotten in the way of any investigative analysis. DOD officials relegated the issue to the back room or swept it under the rug entirely. Fear of a skeptical national security community. Last year's report released by the Office of Director of National Intelligence and the Pentagon's UAP Task Force found no evidence to suggest the objects are extraterrestrial or from a foreign adversary. But the report also could not explain most of the objects. The report continues that there is little doubt that the unidentified objects are real objects, whatever they may be, because at least 80 of the 144 incidents were detected by multiple sensors, the report found. UAP clearly pose a safety of flight issue and may pose a challenge to U.S. national security. In November of 2021, the Pentagon established an Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group to succeed the Navy's UAP task force with the intention of better coordinating the reporting and investigating incidents. The last public congressional hearing on UFOs was held in the 1960s before the disbandment of Project Blue Book, a U.S. Air Force program that investigated and analyzed reports of UFOs. The project lasted from 1947 to 1969 and was disbanded in part because the objects were found to pose no threat to national security, according to an Air Force fact sheet. In the annuals of American UFO history, a few incidents have inspired as much fascination and speculation as the one in Roswell, New Mexico. So what have we learned from the Pentagon's after 75 years? Nothing. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Downsides and experience of work from home. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. It's time to talk about IT from a professional standpoint. Information technology, we we bandy these terms around so much, but it's really information technology. We start talking about the business in many different aspects. So I've been asked, are there downsides to working from home? And after two years, I would hope you figured out some of your downsides and some of your upsides. And I want to kind of throw a few different things into the mix here. But both I want to talk about the fact that I've had positive and negative experiences from the idea of working from home. And there are ways to cross some of these barriers. So we go back, uh, we go back a ways in my career and the company I was working for, uh, for a while, uh, there was the ability to work from home one day out of the week. And I found that that, uh, that particular work environment was quite a bit stressful. My manager, we, we had a small team and my manager would take one particular day off every week and everything was good the day before she left, the day after she returned. And another coworker, she took off Fridays uh, and the day before and the day after it was good. For me, everything was good through the week except for I would leave for the day before my designated day to work from home. And I would find out when I got home that all of a sudden my manager was not happy. 
And this was on a daily, this was on a weekly basis. And then the day I was gone, I would hear all kinds of other things, all kinds of negativity coming from the office. But then when I returned to the office, everything was good. It was great. It was wonderful. It was just when I wasn't there, which is, which is uncomfortable. It adds that certain level of paranoia where, okay, I'm working from home, but now I'm feeling paranoid even though I'm putting in the same volume of work and the same quality and everything else. That was kind of rough. Now, maybe it would have helped if I had gone with some of the ideas that they've had over the uh, recent times of the virtual water cooler, of getting more involved when I'm remote, of connecting up. But we didn't have the the various instant messaging apps at that particular company. We relied on a lot of face-to-face. Now, where I'm at right now, it's a completely different thing because we were already, as a company, working pretty close to working via remote. I remember when I was in the office, I, I sat at my desk and I had, uh, I had various meetings and some of the meetings that I set up, I, one of the meetings, it was a daily meeting. There was a person who, even though he was across the aisle from me, I, my, my desk faced his desk. He was across the aisle. We faced in the other direction he was on the same conference call as well as someone who was across the aisle in the other direction from him across his own aisle. And then two more people, three more people on the other side of a cubicle wall. All of us, the six of us, were on this call. We could have gone into a conference room. We could have gone wherever and had our conversation. We could have just gathered in front of each other or in front of the water cooler and communicated to each other all of this information that we needed to share. It was 15-minute meeting every day, just catching up. Okay, here's what we've got going on. Here's what we need to do. This is all great. We were, do- we were working virtually in the same office, and that actually worked out really well. Now, there is something in the virtual water cooler where you meet up and you just meet with friends. And I found that some of the culture in the company that I am at now, we, we, we connect up and we, we chat and there are various people who connect up and you make friends within the organization, even though you may not see them for, well, a long period of time. Uh, one of my friends, I communicate with him on uh, on a regular basis, and it, there's a work side, and then there's kind of our snarky humor that we exchange, uh, just various little quips and, and stuff like that. We check on each other, how are you doing, and, uh, and hey, how can I pray for you, how can I pray for you, uh, and we have this thing in common uh, that we... Uh, that we both have a very similar background. We have similar work ethics. We have similar, it just a lot of different things. So we connect up and we find out other things that are going on throughout the company. So that actually is very valuable. Connecting up to your, your boss uh, is key to overcoming some of these things. And yes, there are various downsides because yes, uh, you are being disconnected from the, Face to face, the body language, the the understanding of what your boss is looking for and, and things like that. So there's there's a lot of different things. 
the downsides uh, sometimes may be upsides too. Uh, there are statistics that find out that uh, people who are uh, women and, and people who are of color, they actually enjoy the idea of working from home because it separates them from that from a lot of that bias that exists in you know when you're in person and they find that that has changed a lot of things so you know there's there's ups and downs all the way along there's different portions of this experience that uh, i i would say we, you've been dealing with it for two years it's not all that that bad really this is benjamin rockwell back to you hank thank you benjamin The biggest iPhone and Samsung models lead U.S. sales in the latest Wave 7 survey, but foldables, well, they're falling short. Americans like their phones big. They aren't sold on foldables, according to the latest report from Wave 7 Research, which surveys retail store staff to get a picture of who's buying what in American mobile phones today. In its April report, Wave 7 said shoppers are going big. The Galaxy S22 Ultra is the top seller among Samsung phones at postpaid carriers, and the iPhone 13 Pro Max came in top among iPhones at Verizon and AT&T. The Pro Max's size and telephoto capabilities are major pluses for the top-of-the-line models, Wave 7 says. Small phones, meanwhile, fall far behind. The iPhone 13 mini is the worst-selling iPhone 13 model at all carriers, the report says, and 56% of reps are saying demand for the 2022 iPhone SE is weaker than it was for the 2020 model of the low-cost phone. Americans aren't paying $1,000 or more upfront for these phones. They're on long-term payment plans. At prepaid, where folks pay upfront, the story is very different. The low-cost Samsung Galaxy A13 Galaxy A32, and the 2021 Moto G Stylex 5G Ru at Boost, Cricket, and Metro, the report says. That's been the state of the U.S. phone market for years. At postpaid, people are happy to pay $1,000 or more over two or three years for their phone. At prepaid, it's $350 or less. This trend has knocked out any real potential for popular global mid-range phones in the United States. A group of new mid-rangers aims to challenge that. The $450 to $500 Google Pixel 6a and the $450 Samsung Galaxy A53 and the $500 Moto G Stylus 5G for 2022. Big screens may be popular, but the even bigger screens of foldable phones aren't compelling buyers, Wave 7 said. In a survey of reps from the three major carriers, 77% of reps said that they were not seeing solid demand for foldables. Several reps cited in the report said foldable prices were much too high, which is something considering Samsung's $1,000 Galaxy Z Flip 3 is less expensive than both the best-selling Galaxy S22 Ultra and the iPhone 13 Pro Max. On the other hand, Samsung's foldables are late in their yearly cycle right now, and Motorola's foldable Razer is more than a year old, and nobody else has one in the United States. There's no fresh-looking foldable on the market. 
there may be one more factor involved. In a separate survey, Wave 7 says reps told them that camera capabilities was the number one feature shoppers were looking for in smartphones. Foldable phones so far haven't had the best cameras, and if that's the top of the mind for shoppers, it could put foldables low on many lists. Smartphones from both Android and iOS camps have gotten significantly bigger over the past decade. Originally, there were specialized phones for those looking for a bigger screen. In 2015, for example, the flagship Galaxy S6 had a 5.1-inch display. Meanwhile, the Galaxy Note 5 had a larger 5.7-inch screen. Samsung also made a Galaxy S6 Plus which split the difference a bit at 5.5 inches. This was mirrored on Apple's side, with the same year's iPhone 6S offering a 4.7-inch display on its main model, but a 5.5-inch display on the iPhone 6S Plus. Fast-forwarding to 2022, and this sort of setup is mostly disappearing. In Samsung's world, the Galaxy S22 series has absorbed the Note series, with the smallest Galaxy S22 coming in at 6.1 inches, but the Galaxy S22 Ultra 6.8 inches. Apple's iPhone 13 Pro is roughly the same, with 6.1 inch and a 6.7 inch displays. A huge part of it is the war on bezels, which has expanded the space available for the screen. A higher screen-to-body ratio means more screen size in a smaller package, But that hasn't stopped phones from physically growing. Another key reason why phones are getting bigger, and specifically why smaller ones are harder to find, is 5G. The next generation of cellular connectivity is a big deal, and U.S. carriers especially have made it an absolute requirement. 5G hardware, though, requires space, especially for millimeter wave antennas, which is an expected part of the flagship-tier smartphones. And finally, there's battery life. Endurance is one of the biggest factors people consider when buying a smartphone, and it's a simple fact that in most cases, phones with bigger screens have room for bigger batteries and, in turn, better endurance. And there are exceptions to the rule, like the Pixel 6 Pro, but for the most part, a big phone will always deliver the best battery life. The market just doesn't care about small phones. The vast majority of people at this point, just want bigger screens. Statista found that battery life was the single most important priority for smartphone buyers in 2019, which, as we had mentioned, usually goes hand-in-hand with a bigger screen. But surveys don't tell all. The much more definitive result comes from the real-world example, Apple's iPhone mini series. The iPhone 12 mini and the iPhone 12 mini filled the exact need that enthusiasts have been calling for. A fully specced out, no compromise smaller iPhone with a display under 6 inches and a chassis that was much easier to handle. But it didn't sell well. The phone only made up 6% of Apple sales during a two-month period after the launch. Another analysis from the same firm just last month reports that the iPhone 13 mini and the iPhone 12 mini combined accounts for just 3% of Apple sales. Many reviewers praised the iPhone miniseries for its compact size and uncompromising specs, 
But ultimately, it's clear that consumers aren't willing to buy these phones. Why? Very low battery life. Take the Pixel 4 as an example. That phone with a 5.5-inch display was one of the smallest Android phones, but it had to have a small battery. As such, it quickly became infamous for poor battery life. The Pixel 3 a year before it also wasn't in a much better situation, and that's before 5G and its power-hungry radios were part of most smartphones. According to sales and surveys, the small phones may only account for 3-6% to of total sales. But when you consider that 3-6% to of a billion phones, there's still a big market. I just hope they haven't forgotten those people that just want a simple phone. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Microphones. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you know, one of the things that that I have... Uh, I, okay, so I started mixing audio back when I was 13 years old. And I will tell you, I've been dealing with all kinds of different microphones and different sound systems and all kinds of different things over the years. Well, I have all, to ask, was, was your first mic one of those little quarter-size Radio Shack lapel mics? No, uh, it was a Radio Shack. It was um, uh, one of my first two microphones. It was one of the SM58s. It was rebranded. It was an SM58S. Uh, from sure, but you remember it had the switch on it. That's yeah. the S, and it was the exact same microphone except Radio Shack had it everywhere at whatever it was twenty percent off of what you would get it for with the Sure brand name on it. It was absolutely amazing. How unfair to Sure dealers. Yeah, yeah, uh, and but nobody ever. I, I don't think anybody ever really knew it. Unless you long, looked at them side by side, you're like, it's the same mic. Well, right. Well, how, how, how long did it take you before you recognized that if you get too close to the mic, it all sounds a little weird? Or if you start talking about... You mean you're talking about the proximity effects? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, yeah. Uh, I learned about that at an early age. Um, uh, it, you know, so I went to college for radio and television broadcasting. Because uh, I, yeah, I, I just was fascinated by it, and uh, and fascinated by by all of the different the sound is, you know, for me, you know, some people are fascinated by cars, some people are fascinated by whatever other things. Sound to me, just all of the different sounds in life. I uh, and and every mic has its own personality. It does. It, it completely does. I, I, I've been in studios where a guy says, this is my Frank Sinatra mic. I mm -hmm. said, is it one that Sinatra actually used? He said, no, but if he was here, it's the one I would pull out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mention that because Frank Sinatra said about himself, he said, you know, I, I actually have kind of a, an average kind of voice. It's because I know how to use the microphone. And how he used the microphone, which brought out everything for him. He said this. It, it, it's an amazing. Uh, I wish I had the audio to, to listen to that interview. But Maybe he was careful to uh, not have a mic on when he said it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? So, but, uh, but, you know, mics increasingly. Who out there isn't 
talking into one for what a Teams call or a Skype call or something during the day. Yes, yes. Oh, I I had a Skype call the other day. I uh, that I had to get onto. I had to use the stupid little minor electric condenser mic electric. Uh, uh, yes, thank yeah. you. It's it's been a long day and it's <laughs> not even half over. That's uh, built into the laptop, the stupid laptop microphone, and I know I sounded horrible compared to my usual uh, my usual headset that I wear. Well, uh, of, of course, the headset helps contain your ears, so there's less acoustic leakage out the side. <laughs> <laughs> There no, you I go. Mean, the, sure. Learning what's on mic and off mic, learning the characteristics as you get closer or farther, yeah, yeah. learning about mic technologies that can make a difference in what the other guy hears. Sure. Yeah. That that that's a lot of it. Now, I have forever used an Audio Technica condenser mic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been lovely. It looks like a giant licorice lollipop. <laughs> yeah, that's the wind screen on it. Yeah, but yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. And and you'll notice I'm holding it in my hand, which means it's not what I'm using right now. Yes, yes. What, what, what is it that you're using? Is that, um, is that the one from Audio 512? Uh, 512 Audio, yes. Uh, yeah, 512 there. Audio, I'm sorry, yes. It, it's all right. It's their limelight. Now, it's not a condenser mic. It's a dynamic mic. Yes, yes. And what do we know about dynamic mics? It it rejects a lot of the exterior sound around you. That, that condenser mic will pick up uh, the flea scratching at, at the dog <laughs> next door, you know, it, it, with all the windows closed. I mean, it, it picks up everything. Exactly right. And look, if, if there's a conference, mm -hmm. if we've got the usual 15 sets of initials on the screen that you see in a yes. team's call. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Have you noticed that the person who dominates the call is the person who sounds most professional? Yes. And also the person who's, whose voice just cuts through everything. Uh, yes. Not yes. the person whose voice is echoing through the room. Or, or the one who talks in a monotone, so we're going to have our forecast for the quarter, <laughs> and then I'm going to read this PowerPoint to yes. you slide by slide. Right. Yes. That guy, I mute. You know, does, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm going to go uh, see if my Dick Tracy episode is done yet. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. Look, a part, part of the, I, I think our message to listeners today is because mics are part of your life, mm -hmm. it yeah. isn't necessarily expensive to ratchet up a level or two or three to a better mic. Yes. To learn yes, how to yes. address it. Audacity, wonderful little free program that lets you record and play back. Mm -hmm, Talk mm -hmm. into Audacity, adjust your position, adjust the mic, adjust the way you uh, address it. Run 10-second tests, play them back, see how they sound mm -hmm, to you. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon you're going to sound a lot more like the leader of the team's meeting, if not yet a broadcaster, because yeah. as we know, the broadcasters today are mostly robots. That doesn't mm -hmm, matter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what, what, what the microphone offers you is an enhancement that is just phenomenal. And I wanted to try a dynamic mic because, well, it's a technology. A condenser mic is very, very sensitive. A dynamic mic, not so much. The 512 Limelight, my favorite. Definitely. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. The 46th Annual Trenton Computer Festival was held Saturday, 
March the 19th. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. All the sessions were recorded. They are available and free for download at tcf-nj.org and the main page of the website hyperlinks will direct you to the portal site. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region Since most computer clubs are online, you are welcome to attend any of the online meetings. Just log on to the club website for more information for more remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation on Complete Robocore Defense. Thursday, May the 26th, meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is bcug.com. The Westchester PC Users Group has their meeting June the 2nd, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has their meeting on Friday, June the 3rd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. And the website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation on Update on Fighting Robocalls. Meeting on Thursday, June the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, June 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, June the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, call 347-278-7320. If you have any meeting announcements relating to computing that you would like me to announce on your behalf, just send me an email at hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.